Jesus left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake the dust so that it is, that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, let's remember a little bit about what the Gospel of Mark is all about. You know, the four Gospels go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Told good news and they passed it on. Or, when I got down to Norman, a professor of anthropology taught me, I don't know where she learned it, hold the horse till I get on. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, hold the horse till I get on. Whatever it takes to remember things, we need to use them. So Mark is the second, like second in the Bible, second in order, but we believe it was the first written of all four. We believe that Matthew got a lot of his material from Mark. We believe that Luke got a lot of his material from Mark also, and that there was a second source called Q, the letter Q, which is an abbreviation for the German word Quella, that just means source. So we think that Matthew and Luke got their info from Mark and this unnamed source. So those two Gospels are awfully similar, and Mark is awfully similar to those two. So the three of them together seem to be seen from the same viewpoint, and that's why we call them the synoptic Gospels. Sin like synonym, optic like eye, similar viewpoint, seen from the same way. Then John's over here, totally different. It's my favorite. <laughs> it's over here by itself. It's got stories in there you see nowhere else. It's got more stories about women, which I think is neat. And it is not synoptic. It is not told from the exact same perspective. But put all together, we get this rich and deep tradition of stories and ways of telling about the life of Jesus, what he did while he was here on earth. 
It was written in Greek, but we think Mark's first language was Aramaic because there are a few Aramaic words in there, like when he raises the little girl from the dead. He says, little girl, get up, but he says, Talitha kum. And when Jesus is on the cross, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's not Hebrew, that's Aramaic. This text expects familiarity with Hebrew scripture. Mark wants us to know that he is writing about the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah that these people have been waiting for. Now, just before what we read today, we have really positive success stories of Jesus healing people and preaching and being welcomed. But Dr. Famey Perkins of Boston College says this episode in Nazareth forms a somber counterpoint to the astounding success that has surrounded Jesus in the other towns. For the first time in Mark's story, Jesus entered his hometown synagogue and everything changed. Now, Sarah Pugh Montgomery texted me last night and said, I just realized that you're preaching on the scripture about a prophet not being welcome in his or her own hometown. And that's ironic since you grew up at Boston Avenue, and um, so good luck to you. (laughs) But it's been a long enough time that a lot of those people have moved away or... Or crossed the river, as it were, and the rest of you are just putting up with me, and I appreciate it. But you would think that Jesus coming home would be the hometown boy, and they would all get excited, and whatever he'd say, they'd say, oh, sure, yes, and save any negative comments for after they'd gone home and closed their front doors. So why this negative reaction? It's odd. Okay, well, let's look at it. Dr. Perkins says, if Joseph were already dead, it would have been expected that Jesus would have taken over his role as man of the house. We don't hear any more about Joseph after the whole nativity sequence. So we assume Joseph has died, perhaps, and it would be natural for the firstborn son to step in and take over not only his role as man of the house, but also his profession. We know that Jesus and Joseph were tectones, as it says in Greek. They were carpenters or stonemasons of some kind. So he would have just stepped into those sandals and he would have taken over his dad's tools and he would have provided for Mary and these other relatives, whether they are siblings or just cousins. The words are unclear. Um, So Jesus has not done that. And perhaps this home community is reacting with some tension and saying, He's not taking care of his mama. He's not doing what a nice young man should do in the face of the death of his father. He's going off on this wild hair and telling everybody that he's the Messiah. So they thought he had made a bad choice. At the very least, they were confused about why he was doing what he was doing. Either way, the people in his hometown seemed to know a lot about him, and despite what the truth might have been, they formed their own opinions. They think, maybe, I'm just putting myself in the mind of these villagers who were forming opinions about Jesus, maybe they remembered when he was born and remembered those special circumstances of his birth and are still scratching their heads about that. 
And maybe they don't believe that it was a holy situation. Maybe they believe it was a more earthly and earthy situation where a woman finds herself great with child without benefit of a husband. And maybe they haven't remembered this for a few decades and they still want to put shame on Jesus' family because of that. <coughs> Whatever happens, they definitely exhibit that this prophet is without honor in his own hometown. His hometown rejection did not slow down his mission, though. The dust was shaken off the sandals, and they were instructed to carry a staff, which would have been used both to steady them as they walked over uneven ground and also to fight off wild animals that might have been attacking them or wild people who might have wanted to rob them or harm them in some other way. But then he tells them, don't wear a second tunic. What's that all about? Well, in these days, you kind of wore your sleeping bag if you were traveling by foot. You've seen backpackers probably if you've been on a day hike and then you cross along the trail with these folks who have the big, sturdy, metal skeleton backpacks and they've got a ground cover and a tiny sleeping bag that compresses to this size because they bought it from L.L. Bean and it's made of 100% goose down, etc. And then they pull it out at night and it's this warm cover for them and it just sinks to the bottom of their backpacks where they can put all those other provisions that they need to stay alive. Well, this story happened before L.L. Bean. So, in these days, you wore an outer tunic that you took off at night, and it served as either your ground cover or your blanket. So, he said, don't take that blanket tunic. Don't take the outer tunic, because that will force you to rely on the hospitality of these strangers in the towns where you come and go. So, they had very little to rely on. They had no money just in case. They had no tunic just in case. All they had were these really clean sandals and staves to walk with and to defend themselves with. They were also called to bounce back quickly after this rejection and keep moving. No time was wasted. And as you've probably observed in life, people who bounce back quickly from rejection are happier and they waste less of their time brooding over the slight that they've felt or the job that they didn't get or the no that they received over the telephone. I think it's better to learn how to bounce back early since we don't have to live very long at all before we sense rejection or perceived rejection. As a little child, maybe your playmate went over and played with someone else for a few minutes and you felt rejected or your parent deigned to leave you with a babysitter for two hours, or your parents told you to go to bed. I don't know if any of you ever have had that experience, but your parents say go to bed, and what a child feels is rejection. The party's over. Go in there, go to sleep. Our time of hanging out is over. Jesus says in verse 4 that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. Scholars Bruce Molina and Richard Rohrbaugh write that in antiquity, honor was a limited good. Think about your microeconomics class. If something is a limited good, there is a limited supply of it, and that's what pushes prices up. 
Anyway, if you only have a limited amount of something, then it's a zero-sum game. If someone gains, someone else loses. So to be recognized as a prophet in one's own town meant that honor due to other persons and other families was diminished. So those old friends from childhood and the old folks from the neighborhood did not want honor taken away so that Jesus could be honored. If you claimed to more than your appointed honor, it threatened others and would trigger attempts to cut the claimant down to size. Perhaps that's what they were trying to do by saying, is this Mary's son? Not is this Mary and Joseph's son, but is this Mary's son? Didn't we know him when he was six? Didn't we know him when he did that thing when he was 12? Didn't we know him as a 15-year-old? They're trying to cut him down to size so they can stay on top. But God's economy is not a zero-sum game. Hallelujah. It's bigger than that, and we worship a generous God who loves us, in some people's opinions, wastefully. And that's a wonderful word. God loves us wastefully and extravagantly, whether we deserve it or not. That's what grace is all about. Even when we are tiny babies and we come forward with our parents for baptism, this baby hasn't today hasn't had time to do much of anything except be cute and wonderful and very needy. But she is receiving God's grace before she even knows that she will need it, before she's even proven herself one way or the other. We receive it as adults too, whether we deserve it or not. Well, we're all going to experience rejection, not by God, but by probably everybody else or by some minority of everybody else's that we run across in life. In our social media culture, you can experience rejection six times an hour if you would like. If you post things and people give you a thumbs down, if you make a statement about a political candidate before an election and your Aunt Velma defriends you, unfriends you, if you get into an argument with someone that you're friends with about some statement you've made or picture you've posted, you can experience as much rejection as you would like to have. And my solution for that is don't be on social media unless you just really, really, really want to. But so many of our young people experience that instantaneous rejection or acceptance, rejection or acceptance, rejection or acceptance. It's traumatic. Then there are all the other kinds of rejection that we deal with. Don't get a job, or your spouse leaves you, or you call somebody for a date and they tell you no. Or you even call a friend and say, hey, let's go to the movies, and that friend is busy, and you feel rejected. Dr. Frederick Newman is the director of Anxiety and Phobias at the Anxiety and Phobia Center at White Plains, New York, which must not be a fun place to go to. Um, and, uh, but if you have any anxiety or phobias, White Plains is where you need to be. But he wrote a little article about how to avoid rejection. And a lot of his suggestions have to do with preventing it before it happens. You know that if you send out one resume, you probably won't necessarily get a job, but if you send out a hundred resumes to a hundred 
companies, your odds have suddenly gone way up high. Maybe you should keep one more than one iron in the fire, too, he says. A bad job interview doesn't feel so awful if you know you have another one tomorrow. Or if your intended prom date turns you down, don't wallow in pain for years. Ask someone else. Easier at a big school than at a small town school. You run through the directory pretty quickly. Finally, keep in mind that a rejection is not necessarily, probably not even usually, a reflection on who you are. People have their reasons for saying no, many of which are not obvious or explainable, even to them sometimes. I bet you think I'm going to tell you a story of personal rejection that I've had. Well, I thought of one that's far enough in the past that I can tell it without having to get on a plane and go to the Anxiety and Phobia Center (laughs) after this. I'm really over it, but it's a good story. I did not go to a school for college that was very close by. I went to St. Louis, Missouri, which is not that far away, but there were so many kids from the East Coast who wound up at my school. It almost felt like I had gone all the way to New Jersey or someplace. Although New Jersey doesn't touch the coast, does it? Anyway, uh, Delaware. So um, it was culturally very different, which was great for me. I was in the minority religiously, um, majority of Jewish students there at the time, which was great exposure for me. And it wasn't a school that was very big on the Greek system, sororities and fraternities. In fact, they never built sorority houses. They had fraternity houses, but long story, the campus never built sorority houses. They just had rooms in the women's center on the second floor. So they didn't do rush until right after Christmas, the second semester of your first year. And I thought, well, I guess I'll try this out. My mother was in one, my sister was in one. And so you, instead of going from house to house to show yourself off and hear about how great their group was, you went from room to room in that women's building. And there were seven sororities, seven parties that I went to. And after the first round of parties, I was cut by six. They didn't like me. One group liked me, and I wound up being in their sorority. But after a while, I kind of felt like I don't want to be a part of any club that would have me as a member. I guess I... I I just didn't get it. And as I said, it wasn't a campus where you had to be in a sorority or you had no social life. I was pretty miserable in this group, and I had a friend who was well, not much of a friend who I figured, I felt like was very verbally abusive to me. And I thought, you know what? Why am I staying in this organization? So I dropped out. I'm a sorority dropout. (laughs) I turned in my pin to the president in the lobby of the Olin Library, right by where you turn your books in, and she, with a very big jaw, took it back and read some sort of ritual over me and said, well, good luck to you. (laughs) But then I moved into a different housing situation. I made a bunch of new friends. I met more young men not being in a sorority than I had in a sorority. I got involved in theater, and these friends that I hooked up with right after that 
that exit from the sorority are friends that I see once a year uh, someplace around the country because we've all spread out all over the place. But I really will never forget walking into the lobby of the Women's Center and seeing the list of six sororities that said, we don't want Amy Venable. And I don't know why. They didn't like my height. They didn't like my width. They didn't like the fact that, okay, I did wear cowboy boots that day, but I am from Oklahoma. They didn't like my accent. They didn't like my face. I don't know. And maybe the reasons that they rejected me were unknown even to them. But I remember calling home and saying, I didn't make a good impression on these people. Like six times 100 people, 600 people said, we don't like you. I guess it's just because I'm a big dork and don't present very well in front of people. I actually don't carry any guilt for it, but I think maybe it was the hand of God saying, I don't think this is a place where you're going to fit in. It hurts when people say no to you and when they reject you. John Kim, who's an LMFT, said this, though. Whoever rejects you is just refusing to go through the holes in your strainer of life. Whoever rejects you is just the pulp in your orange juice that stays in the strainer while the beautiful juice that is your friends who really care about you and will be with you till the end stays in your glass. And I toast to those friends with orange juice every time I think about it. Strain that rejection out. Let it go. Shake the dust off your sandals as you go. And as Jesus shows us, don't wallow in it. Don't let it slow you down. You have work to do in this life. Let's pray. God, if we carry excess baggage on life's journey, teach us to travel more simply. If our possessions own us, free us to trust you and share with others. If our need for control keeps us anxious and demanding, help us to relax. If we carry loads of guilt, may we hand them over to you, trusting you to forgive us. God, prepare us for your mission of healing the hurting, feeding the hungry, and bringing good news to the poor. Amen.